trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather to examine and assess information for themselves. Please understand there is no implied necessity that you have to believe whatever you hear or whatever I, you know, share with you on this program. Now, I would I would love it if you would consider it, but ultimately what you do with that information is up to you. And this is as it should be. I certainly don't have the answers. I am merely a humble truth seeker who is out there doing my best to find the best information that I can. And then through a laborious process, I do what I can to convert it into truth and light, which is broadcast to you via a number of wonderful uh, platforms throughout uh, the week. So I thank you for finding this program. I would encourage you, please consider becoming a subscriber. And and by all means, please support my sponsors who help make this possible. Govern Your Income, Sewing Quilting Center, um, also uh, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, Life Saving Food, and MonticelloCollege.org. You know, to illustrate the depth of the scientific divide over COVID lockdowns and vaccines... First of all, you have to consider, well, there are those saying there is no disagreement. The science has spoken. Well, that's pretty antithetical. Science does not declare itself, you know, infallible. Science does not declare itself above questioning. Now, politicized scientists, I could definitely see doing that, but no, actual science is all about asking questions. But to illustrate the depth of this divide, I would invite you to take a closer look at uh, Dr. Fauci, emails, and some alleged science regarding the Great Barrington Declaration. Philip W. Magnus and James Harrington from the American Institute for Economic Research have provided some very eye-opening evidence regarding how far the powers that be are willing to go to silence dissenters. Their article says, From October 2nd to October 4th of 2020, the American Institute for Economic Research hosted a small conference for scientists to discuss the COVID-19 lockdowns. Just four days later, Dr. Francis Collins, the retiring director of the National Institutes of Health, would call three of the scientists in attendance fringe epidemiologists in a directive he sent to Anthony Fauci and other senior staff of his agency. They were fringe epidemiologists because they had the temerity to ask whether the lockdowns of 2020 were effective. Now, those three doctors were Dr. Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Dr. Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford. Simply doing what any good scientist would do, they were following the evidence. Now, they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration as they parted company at American Institute for Economic Research, posting it for all to see. So why was Dr. Collins so intent on impugning these three scientists? Well, it's hard to know exactly, mostly because any scientist worth his salt should have been happy to see further research being done. I mean, that is, after all, how ignorance is replaced by knowledge. But Francis Collins was in no mood to replace his own possible ignorance with any kind of knowledge. He was pretty sure he knew all he had to know, and this is one of the most dangerous positions a scientist can take. 
In an email obtained by AIER through a Freedom of Information Act request, Collins told Anthony Fauci, CCing Lawrence Tabak, Deputy Ethics Counsel at the National Institutes of Health, that he wanted, quote, a quick and devastating published takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration's premises. This is the entirety of the email. Hi, Tony and Cliff. CGBDeclaration.org. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary seems to be getting a lot of attention, even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Mike Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it underway? Francis. Now, the article says one wonders why he would CC the deputy ethics counselor on this given the trouble these people seem to have with ethics. But here they were in October of 2020. Fauci wrote that same night to let Collins know there was already a devastating takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration in that August scientific publication, Wired. Francis Fauci wrote, I am pasting in below a piece from Wired that debunks the GBD. Their science reporter Matt Reynolds told us there was no scientific divide over herd immunity, but that's not the funny part. The funny part came when Reynolds declared quite confidently that we no longer had anything to worry about, as lockdowns were of October, as of October 2020, a thing of the past. The problem with the Great Barrington Declaration is that we aren't in lockdown, Reynolds explained. It's hard to find people who are advocating for a return to the lockdown we saw in March. When the Great Barrington Declaration authors declare their opposition to lockdowns, they are quite literally arguing with the past. Now, this Fauci-endorsed passage may be one of the worst takes of the entire pandemic. Less than a month later, lockdowns came roaring back with a vengeance. Fauci wrote to Collins again the next day, this time referencing a breathless op-ed by Greg Gonsalves, a public health professor at Yale in The Nation. And here we arrive at yet another funny part. Gonsalves' article was not exactly a critique of the Great Barrington Declaration. Instead, Gonsalves went after Martin Koldorf, who in an interview with the leftist magazine Jacobin, quite reasonably pointed out that the lockdowns hurt the poor more than most talking heads were willing to admit. Gonsalves' grievance was that by interviewing Koldorf, Jacobin had broken the lockdown solidarity of other far-left websites, including The Nation and The Boston Review. Well, by October 10th, the lines were well drawn, and Fauci thrust himself into the middle of the media hootenanny that was clearly emerging. Collins emailed again to boast about calling the three scientists fringe in the Washington Post, although he told Fauci that their ongoing campaign to take down the Great Barrington Declaration will not be appreciated in the White House. The White House, Fauci retorted, was too busy with other things to worry about the Great Barrington Declaration. There was an election to deal with after all. Now, as the bedfellows became more strange, Greg Gonsalves wrote directly to Collins, thanking him for his undiplomatic approach. For his part, Gonsalves became ever more hostile and profane in his remarks on the Great Barrington Declaration. This effing Great Barrington Declaration is like a bad rash that won't go away, Gonsalves tweeted shortly before reaching out to Collins. A day earlier, the Yale professor also began promoting unhinged conspiracy theories about the Great Barrington Declaration and... AIER that traced to the blog of a former 9-11 truther movement activist. 
Now, some of the emails between Colley and between Collins rather and Fauci sent in response to AIER's Freedom of Information Act request have been redacted, but the surrounding context makes it pretty clear they were looking for a way to impugn the Great Barrington Declaration further if it came up at the White House COVID Task Force meeting on October 16th. That morning, Fauci emailed Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, and he pressed the need for her to oppose the Great Barrington Declaration and set the stage for an attack on Scott Atlas, who was the most friendly champion of the Great Barrington Declaration on the task force. Fauci, it turns out, had to miss the October 16th task force meeting, though he likely breathed a sigh of relief when Collins emailed him two days later, quote, Atlas did not take part in the task force meeting on Friday, and the Great Barrington Declaration did not come up. Another partially redacted email hints that Fauci celebrated this outcome. Atlas's opposition to the lockdown faction on the task force is driving Deb Burks crazy, he continued. But Fauci and Collins were not done in their campaign to take down the GBD scientists. The article here from Phil Magnus and James Harrington says our story picks up again in earnest on November 2nd when Fauci's chief of staff, Greg Folkers, replied to an email that was not made public in pursuance to AIER's Freedom of Information Act request. It seems pretty clear, though, that Fauci asked Folkers for a list of sources that would allow him to argue effectively against the Great Barrington Declaration. The email subject line references a previous correspondence from Fauci, Fauci rather, as discussed, noting that Folkers had highlighted the three I found most useful. Multiple sources, and particularly Scott Atlas's recently published account of his time on the task force, have noted that Fauci often relies on aides to curate lists of sources in advance of his many media appearances. He seldom reads the scientific literature on COVID-19 himself and instead arrives at meetings with staff-prepared talking points. It appears Folker's email was an answer to one such request for talking points to attack the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. Note that Fauci frequently portrays himself as a staunch defender of science who stays above the political divide and remains outside of partisan debates. Well, in light of that, you might expect that Folker's response to Fauci's request would yield a small sample of scientific analysis on the logic behind the lockdowns, even if only in a bullet or a format bullet pointed by his staff. But you'd be wrong. Folker sent Fauci a list of seven political op-eds and articles opposing the Great Barrington Declaration from popular media outlets. So, yeah, science. Got a link to this in the show notes. Well worth your time to read it and follow the links within the story. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here going out to my friends at Sewing and Quilting Center located in St. George, Utah. This is an amazing business in that it was actually started back in 1984 by Ken Harker. It's only changed owners twice. Current owner is Teresa Alsop along with her husband, Eric Alsop. And this is, uh, this is the place to go if you or someone you love, love sewing. Or wants to become skilled in sewing. You can pick up uh, brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, and also handy quilter long arm quilting machines. 
I know. For me, it's kind of like I don't know much of those terms, but I do have family members who are very much into sewing and quilting, and their eyes light up when they hear those names. Oh, they recognize these are some of the top brands in quilting and sewing machines. And here's the cool thing about this. Ken Harker still fixes machines for the business. But if you want to buy machines, you want to buy thread, you want to buy fabric, you want to get trained in how to use it, you need somebody to, to fix your machine, Sewing and Quilting Center at St. George, Utah is the place. There's a link in my show notes. Please check them out for yourself. Moving on in the show here, let's talk a little bit about how a lot of public health experts right now are acting like they can control a virus. Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel, which uh, says, In reality, these experts in government and academia are exposing themselves as clueless charlatans who more than anything just want to control the rest of us. Now, listen to what he has to say. He says, there's one thing that the public health expert class is certain about these days. They have the tools to stop this coronavirus. And he links here to a a clip from ABC's uh, uh, George Stephanopoulos show with with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stephanopoulos asks him, you must be exhausted yourself. What signs of hope can you point to in this holiday season? Dr. Fauci says, we have the tools to protect ourselves, and that's the thing we keep saying over and over again. Now, to back this up, Governor Kathy Hochul, I think I'm saying her name right, the governor of New York. Here's where we're at, New York. The COVID-19 winter surge is in full force, but I'm confident we will overcome this. We are not defenseless. We have the tools to fight this virus. And then here's a tweet from uh, Ashish K. Jha, medical doctor. There are four tools to tame the pandemic. Number one, vaccines. Number two, rapid tests. Number three, improving indoor air. Number four, masks. If we deploy the first three aggressively and smartly, we we need only use the fourth sparingly and safely do essentially everything we value. We have all the tools we need to end this pandemic. Starting to see a pattern here, right? Oh, here's one more. This is from Eric Topol. We will soon have all the tools needed to end the pandemic. If only we had them and were fully used. Vaccines, masks plus mitigation measures, distancing, ventilation, etc. Pill, that would be the MPAC and monoclonal abs as backup. And rapid tests, more important than ever, with a pill. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, look, the thing about these tools, in quotation marks, tools, is that they require blind faith in order to work, since every observable metric shows all of those tools have failed in catastrophic fashion. He links to another picture here. This is from Yahoo. Omicron, the good news is that we have the tools, doctor says. And there's a picture of a lady getting the swab shoved up her nose. Jordan Schachtel says, look, it's time to acknowledge some strikingly clear realities about COVID mania. We are now almost two full years into our population-wide public health expert-managed COVID tyranny. And it has not exactly paid dividends for anyone other than the people in charge who've catapulted to a life of fame and prestige. There's no evidence anywhere in the world that top-down authoritarianism, guided by these excessively praised public health experts, has produced positive outcomes for the health and safety of any nation. In fact, the opposite is true. Throughout the world, sickness and unhealthy habits are increasing across the board, both indirectly and directly, Related to COVID-19. 
By the way, Phil Magnus's name pops up here again, too, and it well should. Phil is an absolutely brilliant researcher, and he shows, you know, how confirmed cases of COVID-19 in New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island follow the exact pattern, no matter what policies they adopt. It's like the virus just runs the fairly predictable course through society. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, according to all observable metrics, the promised cures and mitigation and suppression strategies are not working as advertised. In fact, most of these tools, when employed, are making everything worse. Case in point, here's a tweet from the Charlotte Observer. Cornell University, where 97% of campus is fully vaccinated, is experiencing an outbreak of COVID-19 cases. Now, Schachtel says, look, the mRNA shots were originally sold to the public with the claim that they prevent people from both infecting others and being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. This is why the FDA and CDC, among other public health bureaucracies, decided to greenlight injecting unthreatened five-year-olds with experimental drugs. The promise was that they would be doing their part to save grandma and stop the spread. Yet the prevention and transmission claim has been completely memory-holed as evidenced uh, most recently by the breakouts in universally compliant settings, after a period of time, the shots seem to do nothing at all to prevent infection or transmission. And by the way, he backs this up with video clips of Bill Gates talking about how we'd be doing our part to, to you know, prevent the spread or the transmission of, of this disease. Nope. Here's Joe Biden. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. That was from July of this year. Universal masking, another agreed upon tool to stop a virus, doesn't work. Yet the experts continue to swear by the act of securing a dirty rag to your face. And here's a nice chart illustrating. Back in August, two experts said Denmark proved that high vaccination rates could end surges and squash variants. Well, last month, Denmark imposed vaccine passports, yet with 96% of adults fully vaccinated, their cases have skyrocketed to all-time highs. The experts, trademark, have nailed it again. Jordan Schachtel says, look, curfews and lockdowns, a tool first popularized by the Chinese Communist Party, have done absolutely nothing to solve the virus problem. Of course, the ruling class has taken to quadrupling down on these measures. On January 1st of 2020, if you'd asked anyone about the modern history of pandemics, it would have been well understood that locking down and quarantining an entire population was an unscientific act of total barbarism and a policy measure that was best reserved for the dark ages. Oh, wait, look, here's a, here's a tweet from uh, uh, just last week. Just in, Ireland imposes an 8 p.m. curfew for hospitality and 50% capacity limits on events. Oh, boy. And mass asymptomatic testing has only prolonged this pandemic of stupidity and manifested a very rich industry. The COVID-19 testing industrial complex in the U.S. is completely out of control. And the American taxpayer has been drafted into churning out hundreds of millions of dollars per day to keep it afloat. This continually growing behemoth, which was spawned in 2020 because of the urgent insistence of select powerful members of the U.S. public health complex, is becoming a $100, $100 billion a year industry. And let's take on that uh, term, public health expert. 
The idea that someone could even be a public health expert should be met with great suspicion, but governments across the world have put these people in charge of our entire civilization. Jordan Schachtel says, look, the public health expert class has no idea how to stop people from getting sick. Yet they continue to claim that there are obvious tools to stop a virus. He says these frauds and charlatans used to be relegated rather, to publishing their annual quota of useless academic papers that nobody read. Now their theoretical models and hypotheses have been put to test via government force, and they have failed to an incredible degree. I'm going to have a link to this article. I would encourage you maybe subscribe to uh, Jordan Schachtel's uh, Substack. The guy has a pretty good slant on what's going on around us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, the people in the systems that want to rule us are working overtime, not only to try to accomplish that goal, but one of the things they spend a lot of time and effort doing is trying to convince us, hey, we're just responding to what you actually want. I used to see this a lot. This was uh, uh, when I lived in St. George, Utah. Uh, code enforcement was becoming a real problem in that uh, the city would send out code enforcement officers, you know, by the droves to, to make sure that we're doing the broken windows approach. If if somebody's grass is too high or somebody has, you know, a car sitting in their driveway and it's not registered, my goodness, we're going to we're going to bring that to an end. And when people would complain and say, you are destroying people's private property rights. Usually the people in power would say, well, you know, this is what the public wants. This is what you want us to do. People want their property to be, you know, protected, their values to be protected. There's a degree of truth to that, but it doesn't, uh, it still doesn't pass the sniff test of, is that a legitimate function of proper government? It's more along the lines of the people deserve what they want. They should get it good and hard. And they did and still do to some degrees. So I found a great article here from Paul Rosenberg warning us not to believe the people in the systems who are trying to convince us that, hey, 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 you need us to tell you what to do. In fact, he says, we would be so much better off without them. Now, he says there are millions of people, a majority in many places, who believe in a liberty philosophy, which is basically that the golden rule is the right way for humans to interact that centralization of power is a problem and that leaving markets alone is better than rigging them and so on. But he says there is a problem here. Rather than pushing forward into action, most of these well-intentioned people limp along in uncertainty. He says there are some explanations for this, of course, but the root is probably a fear that rulers have some kind of magic. We fear that without them we'd crash and burn. After all, we've been trained in precisely that for a hundred generations. Rationally, we know it's not true. But emotionally, we're not entirely convinced. So he says, today I'd like to make an important point. That we'll be better off, massively better off, without them. The nagging fear that we're missing something is simply false. The better we get away from rulership, the better off we'll be. I'm going to pause here for a moment and just ask, does that make you feel uncomfortable? 
to hear words like that? What do you mean? The further away we get from rulership, the better off we're going to be? So if you're feeling a little bit of discomfort, let me go ahead and just uh, let me push that into full-blown discomfort. You and I have heard the term anarchy, and it's usually an, oh, we don't want anarchy. That's, that's scary. At its heart, though, the term anarchy does not describe lack of rules. There are no rules. It's every man for himself. It's the law of the jungle. That's the scary definition that is attached to this, but it's not an accurate definition. Anarchy simply means without ruler, as in you don't need someone to rule your life and tell you when to stand up, when to sit down, when to ask for cookies, when to beg. You don't need that. And people will spontaneously and voluntarily organize themselves as needed to solve problems. But again, it makes people terribly uncomfortable to think, oh, everybody will just go crazy. And I have to wonder, are they projecting their own inner fears on everybody else? I mean, would you go crazy? Would you start murdering people and raping and pillaging if, for some reason, there was a breakdown in, in law and order in society? I seriously doubt you would. And the reason that you wouldn't is because you are capable of self-governing. And I'm capable of self-governing. So let's not pretend that uh, lack of a ruler means, boy, we've just spiraled out of control. Here's what Paul Rosenberg says about the numbers. He says, I like crunching numbers on these things because the failure of rulership is hidden in plain sight, little recognized. But digging into the numbers the rulers themselves publish can help you break through the the blockage. rather. So, in the U.S., the social safety net costs at least $2.5 trillion per year. If you add up the federal program, $717 billion back in 2010 and more now, the state programs, $210 billion in 2010, Medicare and Social Security, $1.3 trillion, and perhaps a few smaller items. I think this article was written back in 2019, so those costs may be higher now. That's what it comes to, $2.5 trillion per year as of the time he wrote this. Now, here's what you should know. That annual spending equates to 7 million new houses, plus feeding 100 million families, plus providing health care. For 100 million families. The second year, we could build another 7 million houses as well as feeding and doctoring almost everyone in the country again. And he says, if you have a nagging feeling that these numbers can't be right, then he says, please find them and run them for yourself. It's not that hard to do, and it's likely to help you a great deal. So now he says, let's look at the uh, keep us safe expenses. The U.S. military budget is $686 billion per year. The U.S. intelligence budget is close to $80 billion, probably more so. We'll call it $766 billion. Given 247 million adults and 127 million households in the U.S., with $766 billion, we could give each adult a .30-06 rifle with scope and gear, 1,000 rounds of ammunition, training, and a bulletproof vest. And on top of that, we can add a mortar launcher, a case of 12 shells, training, and a sighting scope for each family the first year. The second year, we could provide a Stinger missile system to every 12th family. The third year, we could give a tank and training to each grouping of 100,000 people. The fourth year, I don't know. What else do we need? Now, again, he says, please run the numbers yourself. Maybe your numbers won't agree with mine. He says, I've used more of a national average on house prices, for example, which uh, may be lower than you're used to. But do it your way and see how it comes out. 
Maybe you'll only come up with money enough for 4 million free houses per year. But if so, please remember, that's 4 million free houses per year, plus food and doctors. And bear in mind that none of the numbers above include police departments. So what this means is that our superstitions are very expensive. And that they're holding us down financially, badly. Paul Rosenberg says it's clear, glaringly obvious that what the rulers do for us with our own money is being done horribly. He says, I once wrote a line about government sending our wealth down the twin sewers of welfare and warfare. I still think it was well said. None of us who's run a business or a household could survive operating so incredibly stupidly. Once we see this and accept that it's really true, we see that liberation from rulership is not just a liberty issue. It's a legitimate financial issue and a big one. More than anything else, it's a moral and spiritual issue. But he says, I'm trying to stay on point. So for an increasing list of reasons, it behooves us to start building our better world. Laying aside the fear that we're somehow missing some crucial ability. We aren't. That feeling is merely an old superstition. To act positively is to expand life. To remain frozen in place is to paralyze life. So he says, pick a spot and start acting. I think he's on to something here. And I would encourage you, look, look, don't necessarily think in terms of politics when it comes to where I should start taking action. Truth be told, there are lots of places where you can put your time, your effort, your energy that don't involve politics at all. If you are involved in your community, you're working within an institution that has real power to affect people's lives for the better. Do you volunteer within your church? There's another institution that has profound impact on community. What are you doing to build and solidify the the stability of your family? There's another institution. Now, some of the remaining institutions like, uh, oh, I don't know, business, that's one where, again, if you're willing to, to buck you know, some of the regulatory directives coming down, you must have every employee jabbed. You know, you can still do a lot of good through business. There's a ton of businesses that do great things within their communities. Academia, media, yeah, they've, uh, they've kind of been uh, co-opted by, by the power centers. Although, I, I will put this out there, you know, part of what I do is help to create and support alternative media. Yeah, people can scoff, but it has never been easier for a person who has a message to get out there to to, uh, create their own platform and to get that message out there. I still think the, the most important thing that any one of us can do before we get to, you know, too intent on changing the rest of the world is make sure that we've got our own... We've got our own house in order. Sorry. I, there, there was a rather pithy way of saying that that uh, really wasn't appropriate, so I, I self-censored. But get your own stuff together. As Jordan Peterson would tell you, make your own bed, and when you get your own life running smoothly, then it's time to start looking around you for people you can help. But first, let's bring that one improved unit, that's ourselves, forward and present that to society i don't know about you i've got a lot of work to do so i'm going to keep working on that but uh yeah not doing anything that is not an option this is the brian hyde show
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got a couple of quick articles here. I'm I'm only going to touch briefly on one of these because I want you to check it out for yourself. Uh, You know, going to college used to be the key to a brighter future. And unfortunately, a college degree just doesn't open the doors that it once used to. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but Peter Clark has a very compelling explanation of why college degrees are losing their value. And this was uh, published on the America, I'm sorry, the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org. The subtitle here is The Signaling Function of College Degrees May Have Been Distorted by the Phenomenon Known as Credential Inflation. I thought this was an interesting take. Peter Clark says the concept of inflation, that is the depreciation of purchasing power of a specific currency, applies to other goods besides money. Inflation is related to the law of supply and demand. As the supply of a commodity increases, the value decreases. Conversely, as the good becomes more scarce, the value of the commodity increases. Now, this same concept is also applicable to tangible items like vintage baseball cards and rare art. And these are rare commodities that cannot be authentically replicated and therefore command a high value on the market. On the other hand, mass-produced rookie cards and replications of Monet's work are plentiful. As a result, they yield little value on the market. Inflation and the opposite principle of deflation can also apply to intangible goods. So when you're looking at the job market, this becomes quite evident. Jobs that require skills that are rare or exceptional tend to pay higher wages. However, they're also compensating differentials that arise because of the risky or unattractive nature of undesirable jobs. The higher wages are due to a lack of workers willing to accept the position rather than the possession of skills that are in demand. Now, Peter Clark says, over the past couple of decades, credentialing of intangible employment value has become more prevalent. So credentials can range from college degrees to professional certifications. One of the most common forms of credentialing has become a four-year college degree. This category of human capital documentation has evolved to take on an alternate function. Now, outside of a few notable exceptions, a bachelor's degree serves as a signaling function. As George Mason economics professor Brian Kaplan argues, the function of a college degree is primarily to signal to potential employers that a job applicant has desirable characteristics. Earning a college degree is more of a validation process than a skill-building process. Employers desire workers that are not only intelligent, but also compliant and punctual. The premise of the signaling model seems to be validated by the fact that many graduates are not using their degrees. In fact, in 2013, only 27% of graduates had a job related to their major. Now, since bachelor's degrees carry a significant signaling function, there's been a substantial increase in the number of job seekers possessing a four-year degree. Retention rates for four-year institutions reached an all-time high of 81% in 2017. In 1900, only 27,410 students earned a bachelor's degree. This number ballooned to 4.2 million by 1940 and has now increased to 99.5 million. Now, these numbers demonstrate the sharp increase in the number of Americans earning college degrees. Today, nearly 40% of all Americans hold a college degree, a four-year degree, that is. Considering the vast increase in college attendance and completion, it's fair to question, 
if a college degree has retained its purchasing power on the job market. And the sad truth is much of the evidence seems to suggest that uh, it has not. So what is credential inflation? Well, the signaling function of college degrees may have been distorted by the phenomenon known as credential inflation, which is nothing more than an increase in the education credentials required for a job. Now, many jobs that previously required no more than a high school diploma are now only accepting applicants with a bachelor's degree. And this shift in credential preferences among employers has now made the four-year degree the unofficial minimum standard for educational requirements. This fact is embodied in the high rates of underemployment among college graduates. Approximately 41% of all recent graduates are working jobs that do not require a college degree. It's shocking when you consider that 17% of hotel clerks and 23.5% of amusement park attendants hold four-year degrees. None of these jobs have traditionally required a college degree. But due to a competitive job market where most applicants have degrees, many recent graduates have no means of distinguishing themselves from other potential employees. Thus, many recent graduates have no option but to accept low-paying jobs. Peter Clark points out the value of a college degree has gone down due to the vast increase in the number of workers who possess degrees. This form of debasement mimics the effect of printing more money. Following the law of supply and demand, the greater the quantity of a commodity, the lower the value. Now, the hordes of guidance counselors and parents urging kids to attend college have certainly contributed to the problem. However, public policy has served to amplify this issue. Various kinds of loan programs, government scholarships, and other programs have incentivized more students to pursue college degrees. And policies that make college more accessible, proposals for free college, for instance, also devalue degrees. More people attending college makes degrees even more common and further depreciated. Now, of course, this is not to say brilliant students with aspirations of a career in STEM fields should avoid college, but for the average student... A college degree may very well be a malinvestment and hinder their future. Incurring, incurring large amounts of debt to work for minimum wage is not a wise decision. So when faced with policies and social pressure that have made college the norm, Peter Clark says students should recognize that a college degree isn't everything. If students focused more on obtaining marketable skills than on credentials they might find a way to stand out in a job market flooded with degrees. Now, thankfully, there are a lot of great alternatives out there. I think of Praxis, which is, is a wonderful alternative, P-R-A-X-I-S, Praxis. You should really check it out for yourself. It's, it's good stuff. I think the trade schools and tech schools, another fantastic opportunity. But I do agree with the idea that uh, college degrees are losing their value. When, when everybody is special, nobody is special. If I could quote from The Incredibles. <laughs> but I think there's truth to this. All right, one final note. I'm not going to share much of this. I'll just uh, give you a quick, uh, a quick preview. Tom Luongo, who is a regular contributor to uh, LewRockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers, has an excellent piece called Finding Strength, along a post-COVID Fury Road. Now, I didn't watch Mad Max Fury Road, the 2015 film. Haven't seen it. I know it's very over the top. I think it was the flamethrowing guitar that tipped me off that, wow, this one might just be a little bit of a stretch. 
But here's the gist of what Tom Luongo is saying. He says the COVID-9-11 pandemic is over. With the failure of Omicron to capture the imaginations of only the most unimaginative midwits, the question now is how do we move forward from here? And he says, while we may rejoice that the threat to life and limb from COVID-9-11 may be effectively over, there is still the threat in its name to our liberty and sanity from those who profit most from fear of the virus. He says, the aftershocks from COVID-9-11 will be with us for the foreseeable future. An entire generation has been scarred by this manufactured apocalypse, and there will be no going back to the way things were. We've been warned by so many for so long, and from investigative journalists to the rare honest politician to the filmmakers and artists who crafted stories for us to contemplate the lurking dangers of our deteriorated society. Conditions were ripe for those in power to take maximal advantage of the fear from COVID-9-11, and he says they did so enthusiastically. Now, he says the warnings were clear. There are toxic people out there who would rather destroy the world to hold on to their power than admit defeat. And NBC's Brian Williams actually kind of referenced this last week in his, his sign-off from, from doing news. Something about uh, they're willing to burn the house down with us in it just to maintain their power. So from here, Tom Luongo draws some parallels uh, with Mad Max Fury Road. And and it's it's a fun and interesting read. He's got uh, he's got a great way of turning a phrase, but he says, "Look, here's the key takeaway. Unlike the the characters in Fury Road, we know who broke the world." And he says, "This is what scares those people in power the most, and that's where we find the strength to stare them down and build our own ways forward." Because he says, "If we don't start doing that now." If we don't stop pining for the world that was and accept the world that is, there is no hope of fixing anything. This is why I talk about, uh, you know, we should be more focused on building what comes next rather than reforming what was or trying to reclaim what was. I know that's a bitter reality to face. I do think it's a healthier way to approach things, though. This is The Brian Hyde Show.